Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen this week, like what's happening in, in, in Myanmar. Um, just, um, um, it's in a complete mess, and so I also just, my, my heart is heavy for that country as well. Um, if you think that it was tense during our November election, um, what's going on there is, is, is far greater um, Basically, there's an election, and the, the, the party that, that won, the military disagreed with, and so the military just said, now, now we're in charge of the government, and, and so there's a lot of uh, um, persecution going on um, just with minority groups. One of those minority groups would be Christians, and so Christians are suffering just simply because they bear the name of Christ, and so my, my heart is heavy for them, and Preparing um, for this week's message is, is very similar. Like the second church that we're going to be studying this morning that received this letter in Revelation, that this was a church who they too were facing intense persecution simply because they bear the name of Christ. Um, this, this letter to this church is um, it, it's to the church at Smyrna and it's unique. Um, Smyrna is like, it, 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 it's this letter is unique because it's one of two churches out of those seven churches that didn't get a critique from Christ. It seemed like this was a pretty solid church. Um, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two of those seven churches that did not get rebuked by Christ. Um, and it's the only two, these are the only two letters that mention the phrase synagogue of Satan, which is a pretty, it's a strong uh, statement uh, and, and you're going to see in these seven letters just what's called a chiastric structure. And, and that's just a fancy word for, it's a literary tool that helps you remember things and see comparisons. If you've ever done a March Madness bracket, you, you understand chiastic structure. So in March Madness right now, you have four brackets of 16 seeds. And so in each bracket, you have the one seed will play the 16th seed, two seed will play 15, three plays four, um, four plays 13. Then you have the, up, the dreaded 5-12 upset bracket. Uh, and, and so it works like, you know, top, bottom, then the next, then the next. And that's what these letters are doing as well. Um, letter one and seven are very similar. And then two and six, which is where we are today, they're very similar. And then three, four, and five all have the same struggles. So it's set up like that so it, we will, um, it will catch our attention. The city of Smyrna, it was a fascinating city. In fact, it's, it's, it's the only one of these seven cities that still exists today. It, it's, the name has changed, but the city is still there. Uh, it's modern-day Izmir, and it's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a proud and beautiful city. Uh, its coins had this inscription written on it, the first of Asia in beauty and size. So I mean, it was magnificent. People wanted to be there. It was a thriving city. As you would walk through the city, you would see temples dedicated to Apollos, to um, Aphrodite, to Zeus. And then in AD 25, um, because of its loyalty and faithfulness to Rome, Smyrna was rewarded with the right to be the first to um, create the statue to honor um, Tiberius Caesar. 
This was the same Caesar that was in control when Christ died on the cross. And so because of their loyalty, there is this huge statue of um, Tiberius there in Smyrna. So with all that background in mind, let's turn our attention to the second letter written to this angel and this messenger of the church in Smyrna found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So let's look at that. And, and as we look at it, we're going to be looking at the idea of the, those who are finding life in death. Um, that's my aim this morning is that we would leave here finding life in death, being bold for Christ. So let's read um, verses 8 through 11 together. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Um, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Uh, God, um, I pray that um, anyone here who has an ear, that we would hear from you this morning. That we would be encouraged. That we would... um, Be reminded not to fear when difficult times come our way. That you are the one who's conquered. That there is is no hurt by the second death for those in Christ. And I pray that we would cling to that this morning. I pray that we would see incredible truths this morning that would just embolden us. And Lord, I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage, I... I see four clear truths. You might find more, but I see four from this passage that will embolden you to find life in death. Now, when I say death, I mean, in some ways, that started already for those of you who are in Christ. In Christ, you lay down your life for him. That's, that's actually a picture of baptism, that you're dying to yourself, being raised in new life. And so life starts now for us, and... This passage, I think, emboldens you to find that life in death. The first truth that we see here is that Jesus is bigger than death. That's going to help you when you understand the truth that Jesus is bigger than death. We find this truth in verse 8. Verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, there's a possible play on words here. Um, The city of Smyrna uh, had been destroyed in the 6th century B.C. And then it was rebuilt in 280 B.C. So this is truly a city that had died and was raised again. So Jesus comes and he says that, now, you know, he writes as the one who died and came back to life again. Uh, So the people in the city would understand this language. And Jesus identifies himself here as the first and the last who died and came to life. Uh, The depth found in that statement is so profound. I don't know if we will ever be able to to dig deep enough to understand the profoundness of this statement. 
that Jesus is the first and the last, that he's the one who died and came back to life. I want you to just think back as far as your mind can go. Like, I don't know, go past like childhood memories. Go back to just thinking about creation, before creation, thinking about just there was nothing, God, something was there creating everything that we see. Like at some point, like it just, your brain begins to hurt to think about past. Well, as far as your brain can go back, Jesus was there. As far as you can go back, Jesus has always been there. He is the first. Before all else that is, there is Jesus. At the end of the day, like, you go back there so long, like, your brain just starts to hurt, and, and it's just, you get overwhelmed with the sense of, of awe of God. Not only is he first, he's last. Nothing will last longer than Jesus. He is before and after all things. And simply by saying he's first and last, he, he's clearly claiming like his deity, divinity here. He's saying, I am God. I am first, last. I am God. I mean, just with that statement, whoever's first, by default, has to be God. Does that make sense? Like, whoever's first, whoever created everything, by definition, is God. So Christ is saying, I am God. I am first and last. As we've seen earlier in Revelation, I am Alpha and Omega. Then Jesus goes on to say that he is the one who died and came to life. Now, this is not an easy concept to fully understand, that the one who's first and last is also the one who came and died. In fact, the death of Christ is a huge stumbling block for Muslims. Muslims can't fathom, like, how in the world could, could God die? He's God. So how can the first and last die? Who would have imagined that God could, or better yet, would die? He is before and after all that is or ever will be, and yet he entered history as fully man, was killed, and rose from the dead. The death and resurrection of Jesus means that death had no power over him. If you are the first and last, then defeating death is not that big of a deal. Jesus is bigger than death itself. And with what this church in Smyrna is facing, that truth is exactly what the saints in Smyrna needed to hear. They needed to be reminded that Jesus is bigger than death itself. So after Jesus makes his introduction in verse 8, we see the second truth found in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The second truth here is, is that Jesus knows your struggle. Jesus knows your struggle. There are three struggles here in verse 9. And Jesus says, he knows what you're dealing with. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty and your slander. Now, we've all gone through some kind of storm, difficult times. And it's easy for us to think, like, no one knows exactly what we're going through. 
And maybe on like a human perspective, there might be some truth to that. That you actually don't know what I'm dealing with. But what Jesus is saying, he says, I do. I know your tribulations. In some of your versions, instead of tribulation, it may say afflictions. Um, Afflictions, sufferings, difficulties, troubles. Christ says, I know your struggle. Not, Not just like aware of your struggle. Like if you posted it on Facebook, I'm going through a difficult time. It's kind of weird post, but you post that. We all scroll through. We, we know, I understand, I'm aware of your struggle. But that's not what Christ means here by know. He means identify. Like, I identify. I know what you're going through. I'm with you. Jesus identifies with your struggle. Think of the afflictions, the tribulations that Christ faced. He's Christ. And now he's rejected by his own creation. Has that ever happened to you? It's not. I can go ahead and answer. Uh, what, what, what about, what about um, being spit upon, mocked, beaten, wrongly tried, nailed to a cross? Like Christ had suffered. And not just the physical suffering, but the spiritual, emotional suffering of just going through the cross. Dying for the sins of the world. Christ identifies with your afflictions. Then he also mentions poverty. Has your finances ever been tight? Jesus can identify even with your finances. He says he knows their poverty. Jesus didn't live an extravagant life on earth. He came from a poor family. Joseph and Mary didn't have much money. But I love how Jesus challenges their perspective. He says, I know your poverty, but then he makes this parenthetical statement. He says, but you are rich. Poverty is about perspective. I I realized that going um, overseas. You can go to some of the poorest countries and you find some of the happiest people. Uh, I went to Guatemala a couple years ago. In Guatemala, there was this this city dump, basically, that trucks would bring all their garbage and dump. And these kids and families would come to, the, to the, um, this dump site, and they would be laughing and just digging through the trash with so much joy on their face. Just, here's new trash for us. So excited about what they may be able to get from the trash. And I just watched these kids laugh and find trash and make games and play with each other and Smiles on their face. They enjoyed life. And I look back here at our country with so many, you know, just riches and wealth. And you see kids who are just depressed and suicidal. Poverty is perspective. This church financially was poor. Um, These Christians probably weren't allowed to buy and sell goods because of the persecution they were facing by the Jews. Materially, they had very little But spiritually, they had everything. They were rich. James 2, verse 5, um, I think um, helps us understand this truth. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith 
and the heirs of the kingdom, which is promised to those who love him. I, I love this truth here that you can be poor by worldly standards, and you can be rich, have deep faith. You and I are filthy rich because we have this treasure in Christ. When it's all said and done, when Jesus comes on that white horse, your raggedy clothes, your used car, your house with old appliances or outdated kitchens will not matter. The only thing that will matter is whether or not you have the gospel. And if you have the gospel, then you are rich. You have a treasure. Uh, This wealth is yours if you trust Christ. But don't embrace Christ just because you think you get riches. Like you need to understand that Christ is that treasure. That Christ is the ultimate treasure. And when you see him as treasure, then the things of this world just don't seem to matter anymore. And that's what Christ is trying to get this church to focus on. Like, don't think about the poverty as in, like, the world would define it. Because you are rich. You are rich in Christ. Then the third thing that Jesus tells this church that he knows, that he identifies with, is slander. Christ knows the slander of those who say that they're Jews, but are actually not. And here he calls them a synagogue of Satan. The synagogue is a gathering place for Jews to meet and worship their God. And here Christ makes a bold statement to say those Jews, uh, those Jews are not true Jews. Um, A little bit of background here. The Jews, under Roman rule, they didn't have to... um, to participate in Roman idolatry. Everyone else was required, but the Jews, they were just this unique people group that the Rome, Romans just said, you guys can just do your thing, um, and, but everybody else needs to. Well, now Christians, you know, they're similar to Jews. You know, we're going to talk about Moses and Abraham. And so Christians were kind of excluded as well, but then the Jews would get upset that the Christians were having some of the benefits that the Jews had. So they would rat out the Christians. And so that's what's going on in Smyrna. As long as the Christians fell under the Jewish umbrella, they were fine. But then the Jews began to tattle on them, rat them out, sell out the Christians, and then the Christians would have to be forced to worship Caesar. Well, Christians aren't going to do that. They aren't going to bow down and say Caesar is Lord. Only Christ is Lord. So in verse 9, Jesus denies the status of Jews to those who do not serve the Jewish king. Christ is basically saying, if these Jews don't worship me, the Jewish king, the king of the Jews, then they aren't really Jews at all. And then he identifies their true allegiance. He says, those who gather in synagogues uh, to celebrate Satan's kingdom, not God's. God's kingdom is advancing with King Jesus on the throne And you're not a part of that. And so Jesus basically says, those who are not for him are against him. And that's the truth for all, not just for Jews who are not, but for anyone that is not for Christ, they are against him. Then we come to the third truth found in verse 10. Verse 10 says, do not fear 
what you are about to suffer. You know, that's what anxiety is. Anxiety is being this, there's something unknown, like something out there yet, tomorrow's worries, something happening next week that I can't control. I'm so afraid. And so Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The third truth is Jesus calls his people to be faithful unto death. Jesus calls his people to be faithful unto death. I love that Jesus does not show up on the scene to this church who's facing difficult times and he just says, suck it up. Get over it. You guys are a bunch of babies. Life's hard, okay? Get over it. He doesn't do that. He meets them where they are, and, and he offers encouragement. First, he tells them not to fear what they are about to suffer. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. You don't have to fear that suffering. But notice he doesn't say, hey, don't fear about the suffering because I'm going to take it away from you. Notice that Jesus doesn't remove their suffering. I mean, he is the first and the last, the one who defeated death, rose again. Surely he can remove some suffering from your life. Well, why doesn't he remove it? That's the question we often ask. If God is loving and he cares for me, why doesn't he just take the suffering away? He doesn't remove the suffering often. But rather, he is present with you in your suffering. That's why we don't need to be afraid. It's because we're not alone. He is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So yes, you're going to face suffering as a Christian, but you're not going to do it alone. You have Emmanuel. It's important for us to remember what suffering is doing, what trials. They, they all have a purpose James 1 reminds us of this truth. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is using here the devil's persecution to test and to prove his people. And when his people come through that test, when they come through the storm, they are stronger for it. And they make God look good for being able to sustain them as they're going through that storm. Have you ever been there? You, you've been able to, to attest to that truth? Most people, when they go through the storm, they hate it. They never want to go through the storm again. But once they're out of it, after some time, they praise God for the storm. I'm thankful God allowed me to go through that difficult time in my life. And so Jesus tells them that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now the number 10 here in the Bible, it, this could be literally 10 days they're going to be in prison. Um, but it, also it could be like this idea, the Bible talks about the number 10, much like other numbers. Um, there's like a meaning behind the number 10. And when the Bible talks about 10, it often reflects God's authority or God's um, governmental rule over the affairs of mankind. So things like the Ten Commandments, 
um, the ten plagues. Even tithing is this idea of a tenth of something. And so these Christians were going to suffer for a period of time. And it seems like Jesus is getting at least some of them ready to lay down their life for him. So we don't know if it's literally ten days. The idea of ten um, can also mean complete, just like the number seven can. I look to my wife and say, seven is a good complete number. Ten, we, we don't need to do that. That's... Um, Around 100 to 150 million Christians have been martyred in the past couple decades. That's an insane amount of number. Like 100 to 150 million Christians have laid down their life for Christ. Some um, would estimate in the last 120 years, so since 1900, roughly, out of all the Christians who have ever been martyred, 65% of martyrs have happened in the last 120 years. Somebody today will die simply because they are a Christian. They bear the name of Christ and they will lay down their life for him today. This is is just the deaths. This is not talking about those who are in prison, tortured, persecuted. Um, Truly, as the early church father Tertullian said, Um, The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. And as our culture, we don't like to talk about death. Like, we're so afraid of death. We're so afraid to die. Some of you, it's your greatest fear is to die. But Jesus calls us to be faithful unto death. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As Christians, why are we so afraid to die? We see from this verse that nothing can truly harm us. You might be able to hurt the body, but this is not us. This is not me. This is just a shell. Praise God, this is not me. I'm going to get a new body. I don't know what that means. I picture I'm going to be tall, dark, and handsome, the new body. With flowing hair, like Xavier. Like, we're so afraid to die. What's crazy is we're all going to do it. It's 100% chance, mortality rate. We're all going to die unless the Lord returns. But yet, we're so afraid to talk about death. For the Christian, it's, it's freedom. We leave this body. I think about my stepdad. He, he passed away a few weeks ago. Loved the Lord. And as hard as it was to say goodbye to him, um, you know, and in fact, with COVID, we couldn't even get to say goodbye in a proper way. He's been in a nursing home since June. He's been suffering. And so in many ways, like, death for him was gain. Like, he's better off today than I am, what we are. But we're so afraid to die. Nothing can harm us. When we're in Christ, you know, nothing can harm us. They can destroy our bodies, but they cannot kill the soul. Our last truth is found in verse 11. Verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The last truth is that Jesus promises his people life. Jesus promises his people life. Verse 11 closes the letter to the church at Smyrna by calling those who have ears to hear, to to hear. And then there's this promise of life in verse 10 that, that is restated in verse 11. At the end of verse 11, we read, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In this context, conquering clearly means remaining faithful to Jesus, even unto death. That's what it means for us to conquer, that we remain faithful. Um, We see what the second death is in chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 14. It says, the death, um, then death and Hades were thrown into the fire, excuse me, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So we, we know what this is. The second death is a death that those who are thrown into the lake of fire will experience forever. It is the death of the soul. So the first death is the death of the body. The second death is the death of the soul. And if you're in Christ, then yes, this body will die, but your soul, who you truly are, will never die. You will not taste the second death. The only way to avoid the second death is to believe in Jesus, to put your hope in him, to live like you believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be faithful unto death. That you give your life to him and your life looks like you've given your life to him. The one who truly conquers in this passage is Christ. Christ, his death was extremely powerful and gracious. I mean, think about it for a moment. Not only did his death pay our debt, but his death and resurrection also allows us to conquer death. So we are also conquerors. That first song we sang this morning was about, you know, Christ is this mighty warrior. He's, he's victorious because he's victorious. We are victorious. His conquering empowers us to be bold that we stand firm in suffering this is why martyrs they have this boldness about them like in that moment it's like do you want to live or die and and this i want to live but i'm i'm going to die for christ do what you will it's, it's amazing how there's this boldness in those who lay down their life for christ like they're just What's happened in that moment is they see Jesus and death in Jesus better than, than life itself. That everything this world has to offer, they'd be willing to give it up in order to make much of Christ, even if that means death. God gets the glory for martyrs. Because he is the one who convinced them that loving Jesus is better than life itself. Christ is the one who satisfies. He satisfies your heart in such a way that you cannot even deny him. Like you won't want to deny him. That, that, That he sustains you to be faithful even unto death. When this letter, like, Revelation, so we're reading a chunk, okay? So when this letter 
written to this church at Smyrna, when it actually went to that church, it is quite possible that one of the members, one of the saints in that congregation was a guy named Polycarp. He would have been a young man when John wrote this letter. Polycarp, um, you see this is a pic. Actually, the picture's not there. Huh. You can't see. Just imagine. Polycarp. Okay. Um, you see, lived 69 to 155 A.D. And so um, as he became older, he became the bishop of this city, Smyrna. So he's this bishop, and they want him to bow down to Caesar, to say Caesar is Lord, and he won't do it. This is his reply. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your mind. Polycarp said, call them. <laughs> For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted us, but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous. So here's this old man that just won't give lip service to Caesar. He won't say Caesar is Lord. All, we, all you have to do is just say that. Now, I wonder if some of you would just say, if you were in that situation, if you just think, man, I'll just say it. I'll, you know, I'll cross my fingers by my back. But, I, you know, I'll just, there's just some words. It doesn't mean anything to me. Polycarp's like, there's no way I will ever say Caesar is my Lord. Send the wild beasts. I don't care. And that. There's something inside him that, like, he truly believes Christ is better. So they say to Polycarp, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you change your mind. So wild beasts don't scare him, we'll burn you. Polycarp says, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little time. For you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. <laughs> I want to go to war with this guy. This is awesome. So then they were about to nail him to the, to the, to the stake to make sure that he wouldn't, after they set him on fire, that we just wouldn't have this man burning to death, running around the town. So they're going to nail him to the stake. And he said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to also remain um, in the fire unmoved. So they didn't nail him. They, they just put his hands behind his back and tied his hands together around the stake. And with his hands put behind him and tied uh, like a burnt offering, ready and acceptable to God, he looked up to heaven and said, Lord God Almighty, Father of my beloved and blessed servant Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and all creation and of the whole race of the righteous who live in your presence, I bless you because you have deemed me worthy of this day. 
And then those watching saw the man in flames, but much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Polycarp was not consumed by the flames. He's burning. I mean, there's fire, but he's not burning. The spectators, you can read this, they'll, they'll say like Polycarp had like this, like this appearance of like this golden just color around him. He just shined. And then when the fire appeared to be ineffective, the soldiers just killed him with spears. That's how he died. He died victorious, confident that he would not be hurt at all by the second death. He died the first death, but there'd be no pain in his second death. But he reminded them over and over, woe is you who faces the second death. Christ went through slander, persecution, rejection, imprisonment, and even death, death on a cross. He walked this road of suffering, but he came to life. He conquered. He won. And just like our Savior, we too may walk down road of suffering, persecutions, maybe even death. But we see four truths in this passage that should lead us to believe that Jesus is worth dying for. If he's worth dying for, then he's worth living for. We'll invite the band to come back up. My prayer is that you are emboldened this morning, that you would find courage from Christ, that he faced persecution. Men like Polycarp and thousands of others who stood in the midst of that suffering and proclaimed Christ. So I pray that you'd be bold this week. May you not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Um, Lord, this morning I pray that that we would be bold. I pray that we would not um, cling to this shell that we call body, that we call life, as it's the end all. That we don't put our hope in earthly things that will all fade away. Lord, I pray that we would see that our riches are are Christ, being with him forever in heaven. That's our riches, that's our wealth. And no one can take those things from us. So Lord, I pray that you would empower us this week, that we would be uh, bold for you, that we would speak up. We see those who maybe are suffering, that we'd stand up for them. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would speak the name of Jesus to a dark and dying world. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for knowing, for identifying with our sufferings. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.